Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast with me, Toby Webb. This podcast is a recording of our closing plenary session from the Future of Wine conference held on the 26th and 27th of November 2020 online. In the session, we are talking about how we can use sustainability to attract the next generation of wine consumers. You'll hear our editor, Hannah Halmari, introduce the session, and I hope you find it useful. You can find more podcasts like this by searching for Sustainable Wine on your podcast app. And we'd like to thank the sponsors of the conference, the British Standards Institution, Chateau Contra Itoro, Diem, and Control Union. Hi everyone and welcome to the final session of the Future of Wine Forum. So we are closing the conference with the topic of consumers. So specifically how wine brands can use sustainability to attract the next generation of wine consumers. So discussing this today, we have four brilliant panelists. We have Richard Wright from Unilever, Alison Jordan from the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, Madeline Puckett from winefolly.com, and Richard Ellison from Wonderlust Wines. So first of all, welcome to all of you and thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll start off with some quick introductions. So I would just ask each of you to spend about 30 seconds or so to tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. So Madeline, if you could start us off, please. Uh, hello everyone and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Madeline Paquette. I am a, a wine communicator. That's kind of how I describe myself. Uh, my role was basically a manifested role that I created starting in 2011 when I started a website called winefolly.com. Uh, this website is essentially a wine knowledge base. Uh, we focus very much on consumer wine education starting with the real basics, including how do I drink wine and how do I find wines that I like to pretty more advanced topics like let's explore Burgundy and that sort of a thing. And uh, we've talked over the years about organic wine and sustainable wine and um, <laughs> having it fall on, seeing it fall on deaf ears with consumers for many years has been an interesting thing. Uh, another thing about me is I also have produced a couple of books on wine. Um, what makes them unique and different than other wine books is uh, their very visual nature for learning about wine. Uh, I started out as a graphic designer, so I sort of translated my graphic skills into helping people learn about wine. And uh, that's me. Thank you, Madeline. Um, Allison, do you go next? Sure. It's great to be with you all. I'm Allison Jordan. I'm Vice President of Environmental Affairs for Wine Institute and also Executive Director of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance. Um, that's a partnership between Wine Institute and the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. So we promote sustainability from grapes to glass. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with California vintners and growers over the past two decades, which is hard to believe. Um, first, as we established the Alliance and its educational program, which is ongoing. And then as we created Certified California Sustainable Wine Growing, which is the third party certification program that first launched in 2010. Thank you, Allison. Now over to Richard Wright. Hi, um, 
I'm Richard Wright. I'm a rather terrified psychologist. I'm terrified because I probably know less about wine than anybody on the call. I know a little bit about behaviour and a bit about brands. I'm the direct sustainable behaviour at Unilever. And I've worked across a, a whole range of sustainability issues in that time. Um, since about 2010, actually even before that, back to the 2000s. Uh, my current program really focuses on sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, where we look at social businesses and support social businesses. And that brings me into contact with a um, diverse range of people, such as smallholder farmers, shopkeepers and customers in those markets. So I can get a sense of some of the, uh, the agricultural issues um, that are involved. Thanks, Richard. And now over to Richard Ellison. Hi, Hannah. <clears throat> nice to be here uh, again this week. Um, for those of you who don't know me yet, I'm, I'm Richard from Wanderlust Wine. Uh, I started the business about just over four years ago, uh, uh, coming into the wine business afresh um, from, from a different career and different previous life. And um, I suppose for me, uh, the, the name Wanderlust was pretty fitting because what we do is, and what I've always believed in, is to go out and, and hunt for these small producers that are actually from sort of a, a sustainable and organic nature or organic focus to bring them into the UK exclusively um, and to sell them to normal consumers um, that might know a lot about wine or very little about wine and making the whole topic um, accessible and, and non-faddy and actually, um, you know, just very easy for people to to explore the world of wine through someone that's that's being being just honest and working with small producers. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. So today's topic is focused on how wine brands can use sustainability to make wine relevant again for younger consumers. So we see that millennials and Gen Z consumers are drinking less and less wine, but they're also the generations who are the most concerned about sustainability and hold it as an increasingly important factor when they're making their purchasing decisions. So how can wine brands leverage sustainability in their marketing to attract these consumers? So that is the question I will hand over to our panelists for some opening remarks. But quickly before I do so, just a reminder and encouragement to the audience, please drop in all of your questions into the chat box there on Zoom, and I will bring those into the conversation. Um, but with that, Richard Ellison, I'll hand it over back to you if you could kick off the discussion uh, with some opening remarks, please. So I think the, fir the first thing that jumped at me with this, this topic was, I think we have to be very careful here about how brands can use sustainability to sell wine. Because for me, you know, I started, the, I started Wanderlust Wine with a very true and honest nature that, uh, that we do an honest thing. You know, we go and look for organic and biodynamic producers and we bring them here. We don't use the angle to sell wine. That's just what we do and people are attracted to it. So, you know... I'm being the agitator from the first 30 seconds in, 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 the, in the talk here, but it's something I believe passionately about that this shouldn't be about manipulating the subject. It should be about, about <clears throat> establishing those credentials through the industry and allowing consumers to understand that and to pick. Um, and, and along these lines, I guess, you know, when I started 
the idea of going out to find these small producers and to bring them to the UK, you know, I would travel all over the world and, you know, including America and California, you'd find all these amazing growers in Sonoma, for example, and none of them would be in the UK. So I, th I suppose that the fact that, I mean, our consumer base, just to, just to give people an idea, I mean, um, the, the sort of millennial bracket uh, is about 34% of our consumers and then moving into the, the sort of the level above the 35 to 44 year olds uh, is another 26%. So a huge percentage of our customer base and traffic is in that, um, is in that millennial um, and sort of affluent 30s sort of brackets and 40, early 40s bracket. And that sort of come about very naturally and very organically. You know, we never, I never set out to say this should appeal to this, this type of person. I've always just gone out to find really amazing wines with a story and to tell that story about the small producer and to help help those those small producers. So um, I think it's quite an interesting play, really, to say, you know, I never really expected this to be uh, for younger people. It was just the fact that, you know, I was a, you know, I was, a rel I looked relatively young back then, probably aged quite a bit since. But, um, and it naturally people have just, come to it and said, this is exactly what I believe in. These are the sorts of ethics and the things I believe in. It is also, I think, key, you know, everyone has a different idea of sustainability, maybe. For me, it was about um, those producers that were environmentally sustainable, um, that were socially sustainable around, you know, what we're doing and supporting small growers, um, but also having a business that was economically sustainable and that would, that would be here for a for a while and not just a quick sort of flash in the pan. I do establish those those things and communicate them. Um, and it's something we work hard to to get across more and more, I suppose. So uh, they're my opening comments, was Hannah, quite a lot there. But um, the main thing is, uh, you know, it should just be about making sustainability something that people can understand and, and make a decision about whether they want to buy into it. Thanks, Richard. And yes, lots to unpack there. Absolutely. Um, moving on to Alison for some opening remarks, please. Sure. Um, I fully agree with Richard that sustainability really does have to be authentic. Um, and I do think there's really enormous potential for making it more relevant for younger consumers. I have a daughter who's a teenager. She's not yet of drinking age, but I can certainly see the interest um, in both my daughter and her peers. Um, and I just think it's going to continue to grow. And I think if we think about it, wine is really the original natural beverage. Um, sustainability is all about the care that's shown in every step of growing grapes and making wine. And I think, again, younger consumers are increasingly caring about how things are made, how the people who make them are treated, um, being connected with a sense of place. And of course, wine is an agricultural product, so it's directly tied to the place, to the land. Um, I would say the same isn't always true for some of the other alcoholic beverages that um, you alluded to, Hannah, earlier. Um, but I do think sustainability gives us a meaningful way to connect with this important segment. It really is the future of our wine consumers, at least for now. <laughs> and um, they want to know that wine growers and vintners care. They're doing the right things for people and for the planet. Um, I would say that, again, people have been doing these practices. And so certification or, or being able to talk about it in a way that resonates with consumers is really what's new. Um, we've done some recent consumer and trade research with wine intelligence 
and full glass research in 2019 and 2020. And it really reaffirms some of the setup that you gave Hannah, but I thought I would just share a couple of facts, um, one or things that we found. Um, one, younger drinkers are more open to sustainability in wine. Um, Gen Zs have a stronger perception that wine quality will be directly linked to sustainable wine production. Millennials um, lead the way in terms of purchasing, actually purchasing sustainable and environmentally produced wine. And nine in 10 of them said that they are willing to pay more for sustainably produced wine. And they're just generally more engaged with sustainability. They think it's important to protect the future and they have a strong affinity towards these types of certifications. Um, on the trade side are some of our other work, um, work that we had done with full glass research. Um, three quarters of trade felt that the demand for sustainably produced products has increased over the past five to 10 years, and even more think it will increase in the next five to 10 years. So certainly something that's not going away anytime soon. And they also said that um, all things being equal in terms of the product, 71% of them would purchase a sustainably produced wine over one that's not. And as for the industry perspective, um, sustainable wine growing really has been widely embraced in California um, in Sonoma, as Richard mentioned, but beyond. Um, and we are the fourth largest wine producing region of the world. So it's impressive that a, a vast majority of wine is now made in a certified winery and nearly half of the acreage is certified to either our program or to other California programs. And I think the, again, the certifications have been important in helping to define sustainability. So in turn, we can communicate about it. Um, early on, I'd hear the critique that sustainability isn't defined, but for California, and I think for the industry as a whole, it's really about making great wines while protecting the environment, being a good neighbor and employee and maintaining a thriving business. And we've worked hard here in the US, but also internationally to make sure we have that common definition. I think having that is the right place to start. So regardless of where wineries are in the world, they can talk about sustainability in the same way. And again, that will help us in turn educate trade and consumers. Um, and I think the last thing I'll mention is, is really the substance of these programs is what really matters, especially to younger generations that may be skeptical of sustainability claims of greenwashing, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, so certifications must be credible and transparent and also adhere to international protocols. But to Richard, Richard's point, um, I think really certification is a step. Um, it might not even be necessary for smaller producers that are hand selling their wines. It's really about what the wineries are telling their customers and their consumers about why sustainability matters to them, what it means for their vineyards and wineries in practice, and why they should care. Thank you, Allison. And now Richard Wright will come over to you if you could share your views on the topic, please. Hi, so um, I'll give a perspective from the fast-moving consumer goods industry. Um, and I will look to see whether there's an extrapolation from there, and there might not be. But I want to just talk about Unilever's experience and Unilever's approach. Uh, we've been in sustainability for a long time. I think since about 1999, um, before it was before it was fashionable. And in 2010, we made some big commitments around what we call our sustainable living plan. 
And that's, we were saying that we were going to do more good in the world, social, environmental, um, economic benefit, and less harm, less environmental damage. Um, so in sustainability in its full sense, both socially, economic and environmental, not just the environmental side. The way that we drive sustainability, and we've done very well with it, we're the leaders of the Dow Jones Sustainability Index in our sector, and we're well known for our, our sustainable strategy, is that we give our brands a purpose. So our brands have a reason for existing. Uh, they're no more um, significant than, than, a, than a, a wine drink or an alcoholic drink. So Ben and Jerry's uh, strive for climate justice. Life Boy, a soap bar, tries to reduce deaths and children under five. And Dove has a campaign for real beauty, which is probably quite well known to many of you, but particularly in, in the Americans. So we define brands um, that they don't, they need that reason to exist. They have a mission. We make commitments and we measure against them. We, the, some of the factors which have been talked about since I've been on the call are some of the hygiene commitments. There's no point saying that you're trying to create economic good in uh, smallholder farmers and, and having a packaging which is actually creating lots of pack, um, plastic waste. So you need to be authentic, but you need to do more than the hygiene factors in Unilever's view. Um, and what we've seen is the brands that do have a purpose and have a real um, sustainable outcome have been outgrowing the rest of our brands. So we've seen real business benefits and top line and bottom line growth around those brands. So the, so the brands have a purpose in what they say about themselves and what they say, but more importantly, what they're going to do. And each brand needs, what, what are you saying about yourself and what are you doing about it? And, and a real impact. That might be um, empowering women to, um, to look how they feel and feel good about themselves. It might be um, reducing climate change. It might be um, providing an income for smallholder farmers, a million smallholder farmers, or whatever it is. It's, it's a, the right to exist. And how is it going to change its world? So it doesn't, it doesn't have a... Especially right with this, it needs to do something. And I think it's also how you build the, the clutter, how you can talk about yourselves in a distinctive way that isn't like natural, organic. I mean, it send, suggests that consumers might not really understand all of those things. And what we've seen is um, real engagement from the millennials and the generations, the, the younger people. We are fantastic at recruiting young people and, and we get lots of young talent. So I think it, it's, it's really resonant among them. And actually I found out we were the third most searched for um, employer on LinkedIn after Google and Apple. And so I, I think there's a, there's a clear, clear advantage to, to that communication. So it's a, but I guess uh, you could extrapolate to the wine industry.
Thank you, Richard. Yeah, really interesting to hear um, from the perspective from Unilever and how that can apply to the wine industry. So before we get back into that, we're just going to hand over to Madeline. So last, but of course not least, if you could share your opening comments, please. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, how can brands leverage sustainability is the question. Why does my video not become the primary video? This is very obnoxious. Like I, I put my face together for you to see it. It's, it's like, you just it's like, to click on your speaker view. Speaker view. How do I do that? Oh, speaker. Top right. Yeah. Oh, you're the speaker. So can you change it to me? Click on me. Make me the main person. No, you can't do that. I don't right. know if I can change that. Sorry. All right. We're going to look at you while I talk then. Oh, no, so everyone else can see you. That's coming up in the comments. So, okay. All right. All right. Then this is just my experience. Okay. Are you guys seeing the same thing? Is this what you guys are seeing too, Richard and whatnot? Allison. All right. All right. I'm over we're here thinking it's crazy. We can, yeah, all wait, see you. we can all see you battling. Crack on. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It's 7 a.m. in the morning here, and I'm feeling very awake. Uh, here's the thing about brands and using sustainability to attract customers. Um, there, I have a, like, <laughs> I have so much to say on this, but I want to start with a very simple thing. I'm going to share screen. Uh, no, host is disabled screen sharing. Can you enable sh screen sharing for me, real quick? Uh, share screen. I'm going to share screen. Host is disabled. Maybe not. Oh, I have the option. You're the yeah, best. Yeah, you should be able to now. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We're going to look at this thing really quick. All right. I do content on wine. I look up content on wine. If you can see up here on the top, these are this Google Trends is a great tool to use to see what people are interested in. Look over a period of time. This is the past five years. I just threw up biodynamic wine, organic wine, natural wine, and sustainable wine. And when you're looking at search trends and search volume in general, um, we kind of look at anything that gets up to about a hundred per month over time is an interesting category. Maybe it's a breakout category in wine. It's, it's a topic of wine that has value. And when I look at organic and natural wine, uh, sustainable wine and biodynamic wine are little blips on the screen. They don't even matter. Nobody is searching for these terms. They don't care about these things. So if I was looking to brand myself, in some kind of a way. And, and now I'm going to let Richard fight me on this because like natural wine is a made up term. How could we put that on a label? That doesn't even make any sense. And that's fine. I get that. But like natural wine or the organic wine are the two terms that matter to consumers right now. And I'm looking in the United States and these are the related categories. What is biodynamic wine? People don't even know what biodynamic wine is. Uh, or I want to find some organic keto wine. This is this is common search in America. They want to know they want to get some keto ke ketosis on and they want to drink organic because they care about their health. There's a brand dry farm wines is very popular. I would say do a research on what dry farm wines is doing. Um, and then we got our Cameron Diaz's organic wine action Bronson natural white. If you know about that, check that out. Um, <laughs> he's doing some crazy stuff uh, with wine. So that so when I look at uh, and I'm going to stop sharing. So when I look at a category like sustainability in wine, I'm looking at what do people actually care about? And if you were looking at that main uh, chart, you would actually see there is an increased interest over the last five years on organic and sustainable wine. Those are the two categories that seem, or not organic, not sustainable, organic and natural, this term natural wine. 
um, that is interesting to consumers, right? And so they must be marketed, being marketed to by other brands in some kind of a way, or they must be interested in general because they're looking this shit up on the internet. Pardon my, I have, <laughs> I am a little bit rough around the edges. I apologize for swearing. Uh, so, uh, so when I'm producing content, I'm really focusing on what do consumers actually care about? And just to speak to some of our analytics at Wine Folly, more than half of the people who come to our website are under 44 years of age and about eh, 30 something percent are um, under the ages of uh, 35. So these people are using the website because they're trying to learn more about wine because they're trying to make decisions on purchasing wine because the brands are not doing their job at communicating what needs to be communicated in order to sell the wine. So we're literally walking people through what is organic wine, you know? And that's a huge, I noticed there was another question in the comments about organic, the differences between USDA organic and uh, Euro organic. We could talk about that too, but uh, the big thing is that brands are, are, consumers are coming to our website to find answers to wine questions because they're too complex. And brands are not doing a good enough job explaining these topics to their consumers. Uh, so the key takeaway is more information sharing on a general sense about what is inside your bottle of wine is the direction you need to go. A greater level of transparency is the thing that we need to share with our wines. If you look at what Dry Farm Wines is doing, <laughs> it's this is silly because I've been preaching this for years. They list things like the RS, the residual sugar in their wine, and but they list it in terms of the way consumers can consume that information. So instead of it being like six grams per liter residual sugar, they'll say something like um, less than one calorie per glass of, of sugar, sugars in this wine, like practically dry or 100% dry if it's zero grams per liter. You know, it's absolutely no sugar in this wine. And so now consumers think that sugar's added to wine, right? And uh, <laughs> that's another whole mess of things that I have to answer on the internet. No, we're not adding it. Turns out it's in the grapes. Um, but this is what smart brands are doing to market to these people, to tell them that they're making pure wines. Uh, this idea of purity is very forefront right now in consumers' minds. I wanna put pure things in my body I'm, I'm tired of seeing the world become disheveled and, and, fall, and falling apart. And so I only want to put my money towards things that are helping and not hurting. And that's the most that I can do right now. I'm going to try my best to do that. I'm going to try to buy soaps with sustainable packaging. You know, maybe it's uh, compostable packaging or something like that. Uh, I'm going to try to buy uh, wines that are made in a way that is helping the environment, not hurting <laughs> the environment. Um, yeah, I, I would say there's, I got a lot more if you guys want it, but um, I'm gonna stop there. Thank you, Madeline. That was really interesting. And we'll have a lot of questions, I think, coming back to that as well. But so we've talked, so pretty much everyone's just, you know, touched upon the fact that 
we need to do, the wine brands need to communicate better to their consumers, right? About their values and their sustainability practices and what these mean. So my first question is one that I would direct again to all of you. And it's about the wine bottle. So Liz Earl actually mentioned this in our earlier sessions about uh, misinformation in wine, but she just mentioned the amount of space that is on a wine bottle. So what can, what can wine brands do to use the space to better connect and speak to consumers and communicate these values of sustainability? So uh, Richard Ellison, let's go back to you. And oh my gosh, you pick me first each time. You've got space in the wine bowl. How do you fill it with stuff that consumers um, who care about this can actually translate? Well, I think to, to Madeline's point, the consumers don't understand anything about residual sugar levels or acidity levels or pH or all the things that go into it, let alone, I, I completely agree with Madeline. That's why, that's why I think we've seen such great you know, growth in our business each year. There's been people don't understand. They, they, want, to, they want to feel they can come in and, and someone to break it down for them because the wine bottles don't. So there's, there's no point. It's a very hard question to answer because there's no point answering that on the back, back, back of a bottle if there is no standard classification for what they're trying to say that people can understand. Take the natural wine term, which is just horrendously misused and no one quite knows what it really means. And all it really means is people are making wine in a natural way. Um, I'm not I'm not playing about with it too much. Um, so I, I think it's a very difficult question to really define. But I think in terms of what consumers are buying into, which is communication styles, I think, very similar to wine folly, which is communication styles similar to us, which is, you know, this is just about normal people making really awesome wine. And there is no fully duddiness about it, you know, things like vintages, you know, should I care about vintages? Well, not if, you, not if you're buying a 15 pound bottle of wine, no. You know, like all those sorts of things. And for a brand to communicate that is very tough when there is no benchmark for how people speak or understand it in the industry. Um, which is again, why things like Madeline and Wine Folly are so important to try and raise that level of education. Um, so if, it, I mean, I don't make wine, we just buy it. So um, if it were me, what would I do? Um, or what would I recommend to our producers? I think you've got to basically try and break those elements down that they care about, which is, I mean, again, let me go back to what does sustainability in wine really mean? Economic sustainability, uh, social, environmental sustainability, two different factors there, um, as, as well as all the different elements they care about, you know, plastics all the way. To, I mean, that's a good, good example. You know, when we get sent samples, the amount of samples that turn up in polystyrene or plastic, it's horrendous, you know, but those sorts of things don't come through because it's me, the merchant that's selling the wine. You're not buying it from the domain. So I think you've got to try and break down the things the consumer wants to know, which is, you know, how is this wine made? What exact practices do you put into place in the vineyard and in, uh, in the cellar? You know, what is your policy on th certain things that I care about? And um, I think those things are relatively easy to, to research and find. But that's why we've had really great um, results with, with the way that people feel connected to our producers is because we tell their stories and we tell them this is, you know, this is Giuseppe. He's based in Sicily. This is the way he makes his wine. And this is his story. 
and you can tell all those stories directly and talk about how they treat the vineyards and how how the climate in Crete makes it organic very easily and how the climate in England makes it very difficult for it to be organic and things like that you know making it really simple for consumers I think is probably my uh, my my answer Thanks, Richard. And over to Alison, uh, what are your views on this question and the conversation so far? So I think we could probably look at organic and biodynamic, and I think it was really interesting to see that data that Madeline shared about just web searches. They've been around a lot longer, um, and so they're much more readily available, I think, in the marketplace. Um, really, it's only within the last decade, in our case, even more recent, that we've actually seen logos on the bottle. Um, but I think those play a role. And, and while people think they know what organic means, often they don't. Often they think it's they, that it means no materials are applied. When in reality, at least in the United States, it's only materials that are approved by the National Organic Program that are allowed to be used. Um, but in the meantime, there's this little logo that people really respond to when they see that as credible and they're willing to basically know that there's a lot behind that one little seal. So I think for sustainability, that's an important piece of the puzzle. And then like everyone has been saying, the story is so important. So trying to figure out, and the real estate on bottles is so small. So you have to really think about how do I summarize? What are the key things that I'm doing that will help convey what sustainability means to our particular winery? Um, I've seen terms like generational farming or um, carbon neutral or healthy soils, those types of things that maybe will give people a clue what a sustainability claim might mean. Thank you, Alison. And Madeline, would you like to comment on this? All right, this might be a little bit <laughs> forward thinking, um, but uh, if I had a wine brand, <laughs> What, what would I do? How would I, how would I put myself out there as sustainable, given the fact that I'd be searching for wines made with organically grown grapes and bottling them that in, in such a way or whatever, and, and, and making a, a essentially a packaged thing that is a, a organic and or sustainable and both uh, sort of a wine. Um, I would definitely you use the words made with organic grapes if I am doing that anywhere on the bottle I could put that. And that includes, the, the great thing about that is you do actually have to get approved, I think in the US, um, but you have, to, you have to have an organic certified vineyard to, to, to verify that in the US. But if you do have that, <laughs> use it. Um, because uh, not only does that indicate that the wine was made with organic grapes in the United States, it also, it, you have to, uh, the requirement is that you have to have less than like a hundred um, uh, price per million uh, in in your realm of sulfites, and that would be the second thing that I might talk about on a label, which would be it's a very contentious topic. Um, but I might put maybe a slider on like co the commercial standard uh, a maximum amount of sulfites is like a little point. <laughs> Pretend this is the maximum over here, and this being the minimum over here under ten is being uh, the USDA organic type. And if I'm somewhere on that spectrum that is closer to here, I would put like a little mark in that position, like a little V on that line, like just imagine a little V on this line right here. I, I would show myself closer in that direction towards 
zero sulfites versus 350 parts per million, which I think is the commercial max in the United States um, for uh, any kind of product, like fruit juices and blah, 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 that kind of thing. I'm pretty sure that's what it is in the EU, EU too. Uh, don't quote me on that, though, because I haven't looked in a few years, uh, so I can't remember. Um, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And so if I had sulfite level, I would try to show myself closer in the less bad. <laughs> and then I might, I would definitely mention organic as a thing, considering how important it is. And then if there's any way I can use the term natural on my bottle labeling, this sounds evil when I'm saying this, but this is how consumers work. Um, I would mention what, other, what natural processes I'm following in the winery or I'm following in the vineyard. Uh, especially if it had to do with hand harvesting, hand harvesting the grapes, human harvested, right? Um, so if I was labeling a wine, I would focus on those th three things. Obviously, with I agree with Allison, if there's any way I can put a seal on my bottle that is a, a some sort of a regulated seal. I know that the V for vegan, um, the gluten-free, like people pay uh, <laughs> $2,000 a year just to have that seal on their uh, packaging uh, for other foods and that kind of a thing, or at least it does. It's depending on how much money you pay them, lots of money to be able to go gluten-free. Um, and I know that people really respond to that on regular other food packaging. Um, so if they're responding to that on regular food packaging, they would probably respond to that on um, wine packaging as well. And if my wines are zero grams per liter or one or less, like absolutely low, low, low sugar, I would put no sugar, low, you know, I would, I would do, I would absolutely mention that is a hundred percent dry. Um, and, and those are just very fast indicators that a consumer can look at and be like, I trust, I have, I have qualified trust. And when I look at a back label of wine, and I don't know if you guys have the opportunity through your importers in the United States to do this, but like, there's a lot of space back here. And this guy's just using it to talk about how the wine was made, which is cool. But most consumers, look how much room is on the front label, not used for anything. I mean, this is a great brand. It's a delicious wine. But like, uh, we've got a lot of space here to mention just a few small things. And what I might try to do as a brand is to make, you know, those, uh, uh, what are they? I'm, gonna find, I'm trying to find an example. You know how electronics, <laughs> you buy a, a stereo and you look at the back and it has little lines on it. You know where it says like your ohm rating and you know how you're supposed to plug in how the plug works and that kind of a thing and the amperage on the thing and, and please don't hurt yourself and, and open this up and shock yourself because there's valves in here or something like that i might make something like that consistently across all of my wines and include that information on the back label if i can if i have the uh, ability to do so so that the consumers then starts to develop a practice of seeing a consistent set of information and expecting and wanting a consistent set of information about the qualities of that wine, whether it be the sugar level, um, the, the sweetness level rather, and, um, and, and that kind of a thing. And I know many people make dry wines, but nobody lists on the label whether or not it's sweet. And that is literally one of the most important things that consumers care about is like, is this sweet or is this dry? So, uh, so, so using your back packaging or maybe some small little piece on the front or something like that to explain what I'm going to get when I get this wine is, seems foundational. 
Thank you, Madeline. So yeah, really kind of simplifying it down into visual cues that are easy for a consumer to understand. Thank you. Um, and now over to you, Richard Wright, if you just have any comments on how, how would you advise a, a wine company to, to nudge consumer behavior on the bottle? Um, so I'll, I'll try and be quick. The, uh, if you've got to write it on the bottle, um, you probably lost most of the consumers. That's why I feel about fast-moving consumer goods. So the heavily invested um, connoisseur person with the, the 10, 15% of the people who really, really care about the environment may read the label. But if you're left to the mass, then I think you probably have lost the, lost the argument if they need to read it on the bottle. Um, I agree with Madeline. Actually, if you're going to put something, it needs to be simple. It needs to be major. Um, I quite like the claim about that, the sugar claim. Um, it's probably saying what everyone else has, but actually is in, in a way that actually people connect with. So I guess kind of coming as an outsider, very much an outsider, is there's a lot of technical terms you're trying to get and you're, you're trying to educate the consumer on your technical terms rather than meet the consumer. So I think it's got to be something that meets the consumer and the mass of the consumer, not just the invested, um, in a very simple way. Um, and I think it's the words educate, inform, um, always are a bit worrying for me because actually you're assuming that this person, and I think Madeline's chart showed, cares enough that they're going to really actually do that. You need to engage them. You need to meet them in their own territory. So um, I will, I said I'd be short, so that's it. Thank you, Richard. So we have a questions from Lawrence Francis in the audience. So he's asking, why not have QR codes on bottles that link to some meaningful digital content uh, to engage with, with younger consumers through video and audio? So Madeline, I might turn to you for that one. Like any way you can make your stuff more value, more information, if you have more information and you can share that and you want to. Um, I actually, it's interesting because when uh, Richard was talking about how you, if you're reading the label, you're already losing that customer. And um, he's right, actually, for the 80% customer, that person who's just walking through and is like, oh, it's a bee on the label. I like bees. I'm going to buy it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that kind of sign signifying is is very effective and they're not gonna go farther than that and they're just gonna drink the wine and that's gonna be over. That being said, that 20% customer, we all know that that 20% customer is our 80% value, right? Like they're actually giving us, and if you're making high-end wines, you're not necessarily appealing to the 80%. If you're making anything over, you know, I'm gonna pick a pound number, 15, 18 pounds or something like that in UK or, maybe 25 bucks US, uh, you know, you are appealing to somebody who's a little bit more discerning. And to that effect, uh, I read the food labels of all my packaging because I happen to be vegan. So if it has non-vegan ingredients, I won't buy it. And I'm constantly just trying to look for foods that I can eat because I'm hungry. <laughs> and so, like, I'm that 
for those brands that have listed their information on there. And as soon as I can validate that, I will buy and like, oh, it looks good. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Oh, is it vegan? Oh, thank God it's vegan. I can put it in my cart. <laughs> so uh, if you think that you have a 20% audience that might be interested in your product, if you fit a category that is that way, do please provide your information if you can. Um, but, but though I, <laughs> the first step being the mass market being absolutely uh, your label is going to be the most effective thing in selling your wine. And it's just in the beauty of that label and the appeal of that label to that consumer in, in a way. Um, what was the question? Because I got off track. It was about whether brands should look at using QR codes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Definitely. Oh, and um, if you are using a QR code, hot tip. They say that your QR code is supposed to be big. Guess what? Phones are freaking badass right now. And they can be less. It's like three quarters of an inch or something, which is like maybe three centimeters or something wide. They like take a huge amount of space. You can totally fudge that. I've gotten my QR codes down to about a centimeter and they work. So definitely test it on your label, like print it out and test different sizes on your label, but you might actually be able to shrink your QR code down a lot smaller uh, than uh, the, the standard is, uh, uh, is supposed to be. Thank you, Madeline. And Allison, I see you also just added into the chat there about uh, the use of VR in Sonoma County. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Sonoma County had a goal of being 100% certified um, to one of the sustainability programs, including ours. And as part of that, they wanted to help the wineries communicate to the, their consumers about what sustainable wine growing meant. So you basically um, could just use your smartphone to click on the um, VR code on the wine label. And then it took you to this virtual um, environment where they basically talked about the vineyard sustainable practices, the winery sustainable practices, and just to, again, a great way to convey a lot of complicated information, which you can access through the label, but obviously wouldn't be able to fit that much information on the label. And I've seen a couple of great comments coming through on the chat about, um, you know, if you if they're reading the label, if that's where they're getting their information about sustainability, we've already lost. But I just think it's all these different layers. And again, if we're all talking about it in a similar way, then the next time a consumer sees the term, they're going to understand a little bit more about it. And websites and tours in your vineyard and winery that point out specific practices, there's so many ways to be part of all of those layers that eventually help permeate and make it more understandable for everyone. Thanks, Allison. Um, so yeah, moving, moving beyond the bottle. So we have one question that came up in the chat that was from, I think, Jane Masters. So this was directed to Richard. So yeah, where, how would you meet the consumer if not on the bottle? So how can the wine industry raise awareness of sustainability as a topic in wine and, and educate just consumers on the value of sustainable practices. So um, Richard, yeah, right, if we start with you and then we can circulate this to all the panelists. As well. um, so I don't, so um, it doesn't go as an industry rather than a brand. I think that's probably, um, and I don't know, I mean, an industry should, I would I think there's, if we go to the, the, the bottle, is that um, 
it's about at that point of purchase, you want to cue what, and I'm talking to psychologists now, you should have educated them, informed them, um, engaged them, um, energized them before they get to the shelf. So um, if it's around uh, sustainable honey, let's say, or like that, I would um, be the sustainable honeybee wine company or something like that. And then you can cue in that, those associations. So I think there's the, um, as a industry, I think you need to aggregate what you do. So if you are providing um, 10 million jobs for poor people in rural um, environments, then why not say, and actually we're going to create this value for these things. I think you need to probably change the, or at least broaden the topic. Mm. Um, this is about natural, organic, biodynamic, or whatever the, whatever the thing is. So how can, you, how can you be different to another alcohol brand or drink? What's the differentiating factor for the wine industry? And how are you going to drive that agenda? Uh, why? Again, it comes down to what's the purpose of having a wine industry rather than having a nice tasting alcoholic drink. Um, so I think together you couldn't really differentiate. Singly, you probably have to think about how to be clever around the bottle, around the, the title of the brand. I'm uh, hoping that answers the question. Thank you, Richard. And now turning to Richard Ellison, do you have anything you'd like to comment on the conversation? Yeah, I'll take a bit from, from what Madeline said and what Richard said there. And Madeline's absolutely right. You know, the consumer goes through the supermarket or to the wine shop or goes online. They look at the front of the, of the bottle. They don't turn the bottle around and start reading whether it's, you know, been filtered through fish guts or, or not. You know, it's, it's just not the way that we buy wine. And we don't treat it like a foodstuff, do we? We treat it like this with this romantic product that's made in these beautiful vineyards and places you want to go and visit. And I think for me, coming back to this thing about how I was going to answer the question, I think the thing we haven't really talked about is some of the demographic here. I mean, again, I'll go back to the bracket that that, that, that we're ultimately fueled by is the millennials. So that's 1981 to 1996 born, 23 to 38 years old. And the research has shown us, you know, when I've looked into this, I was sort of quite stunned really to step back and think why. These are the, the demographic that are most likely to go out and spend. Um, food and beverage is in the top three things that they would go out and proactively buy all the time, along with um, apparel, accessories and beauty products. They're the demographic that are most interested in discovering new brands. 91% of these people say they want, they're interested in new brands they don't know. That's a huge statistic. Um, authentic customer view, uh, customer reviews are important. They care. They're absolutely passionate about brand values and ethical standards. They will actively go out of their way not to purchase brands that clash with their values or standards. They're the least sensitive towards price, and they're the most financially independent due to the lack of financial overheads. So you know, they they might or might not have a family yet. You know, they are probably ten years into their career or something, but maybe don't have you know, uh, huge financial pressures yet that they might have in 10 years time. So the way that I've read a lot of research on this is they call this sort of conscious consumerism about shared brand ethics being the most important things for these people. And 
um, I guess that that's sort of what we've been doing just without trying really, just trying to be very honest about finding real organic wine and bringing it to real people that really care about those, helping those small growers. Um, and I think if you appeal in that way and bring it back to what those people want, you can start to answer and pick that, that question apart. Thank you, Richard. Um, just having a look through the chat for any other questions from our audience. Um, so one from Lauren Holman here. So she points out how we need to consider the fact that, as you mentioned in the blurb, the younger demographics are moving away from drinking alcohol in general. So how do we keep wine as a relevant topic within this age bracket? So I will open the floor to all of you, if anyone wants to comment on that. That, that question doesn't put into context that with generally people drinking less and you know younger people being more conscious, they're also spending a hell of a lot more. So it's people buying le less Buckfast tonic wine, people buying a bit more great, you know, organic wine from Greece or from America or from France. So it's a much more complicated situation than that, I think. You've got to break it apart to which generation's buying, what do they care about, but not, you know, also what, what are they drinking and why? I think this is touching upon the, the increasing demand for lower alcohol drinks. So would lower alcohol and alcohol-free be, be an option for winemakers? Is another comment from Joe Griffiths here. Yeah, low, low alcohol is definitely uh, something that's very interesting. I mean, I would look at what, what were the most massively rising categories, uh, you know, <laughs> cans of White Claw, which is basically sparkling water with alcohol in it. Um, you know, massively growing category in the United States. Uh, and, and, you know, we are already putting wines in, in a can at that size. Um, and if we have a low alcohol, you know, solution that can fit into a can that can, that can, you know, fill that category in some kind of a way, even if it's like, you know, a <laughs> sparkling water plus wine beverage, you know, something like that, you, you know, th there's like so much opportunity for creativity uh, at the low end, at the entry level end, if you will, in the wine world, uh, you know, any brand who's got the balls to to do something like that with wine, which I know is, it sounds a bit gross, but I've seen other canned com wine companies and uh, sort of canned wine blend companies do really well and massively grow in the marketplace as sort of an entry level product. And I think low alcohol in canned, in cans is like, a really great idea because people are most likely to drink that entire 250 milliliters. So you're being more conscious for your consumer if you're considering the fact that they're going to get blitzed if they're drinking 250 milliliters of 13.5% alcohol. So if we can get it down to like nine or seven, like now we're now we're talking sustainability and consumption. I think it's important also to go back to wine being an agricultural product truly. Um, you know, often right there, the same same producer is growing the grapes and making the wine. Um, and I think that matters. It also shows that it is a food, you know, that we enjoy with meals, with friends and family and the experiential part. I think there's going to be um, a growing interest in that as we are moving out of the pandemic, you know, just sort of those gatherings and long meals together. And so I think there's so many benefits of just the product itself. And then the sustainability then connects to this broader ish, set of issues. Um, I was going to mention really briefly that I think 
while there in the research that we we've done, um, it showed that there was a greater understanding of organic currently, um, but there was also greater consideration, future consideration for purchasing sustainable. And again, I think it's the broader set of issues, water conservation, climate change, some of these issues that our younger generations are gonna be grappling with for generations to come. Um, I think those are things that matter. And so when we're communicating about sustainability, really showing how it impacts their lives, I think is really an important piece of it. And again, that link to the land. Thank you, Allison. Um, so I'm just conscious of time. We have a few minutes left. So we have definitely discussed a lot of interesting points today. And by the sounds of it, I have a lot more to discuss. So I would just like to go um, and ask each of you for what would you say the three key takeaways from, from today's discussion are? What would you want the audience to walk away with if they were to, to forget everything else? Um, so Richard Wright, if we'll start with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, differentiate. I think that's it. You need to differentiate wine in a way that consumers understand and engages them on their territory. Um, what we haven't talked about is, um, which I was going to make, and I'm going to shoehorn in, is that when people talk about health and sugar and things like that, that's about me. When people talk about environment, it's about us. And I think that's an important distinction, the way you talk about these benefits. It's about how we act together. Global warming is our responsibility. My, my own health is my responsibility. Um, I would also say that it's hard, um, and probably this is self-justify why I'm here, it's difficult when you understand the, the subject in too much detail because the minutiae become important and you forget your consumer. And I've seen this happen over and over again in Unilever where they think they'll be invested and um, they will spend an awful lot of time talking about things that the consumer doesn't care about. So meet the consumer. Um, don't assume that they care as much as you do or differentiate as much as you do, but make sure you do differentiate on their terms. That may be about three, three and a half. That's great. Thank you, Richard. And Alison, we'll come over to you. I guess I would want people to walk away thinking that there really is an opportunity of um, sharing information about sustainability to younger consumers and, and using that in the marketplace. Um, and just there are so many different ways we can do it. There have been so many great ideas coming up in chat and Madeline's so creative and has so many great ideas. So I just think there are, there's not a one size fits all. It again, really has to be authentic. Um, but people should be sharing what they're doing in their vineyards and wineries. What I've seen is that most California wineries are actually using sustainable practices. So they should be incorporating that into the storytelling that they do about their winery. Thank you, Alison. And Richard Ellison, over to you. I'd say I, I don't agree with Richard Wright's uh, uh, comment there that it's uh, don't, don't think the consumer cares as much as you. I, uh, the first thing from me would be 
just go and find out who those consumers are. You have to separate the demographics on who you want to appeal to, who you are appealing to, understand your audience, um, and then effectively understand if you're going to be effective or not by who you're trying to effectively appeal to. So uh, Richard is right. You know, don't think the customer cares as much as you if you're not that customer. If you are that customer and you are in that demographic, then then you might be right. And, and that's what happened to us. We have been right. Um, so that's the joy of going second, I guess. Richard's had his, t- his point <laughs> Can I add? Um, um, yes, the second, yes. um, second thing for me would be, um, I suppose, uh, as Alison said, about your authenticity, um, you know, brands should try and get across exactly what they're trying to do and be honest about it. And that's all we've done. And it's worked really well, you know, trying to remove, trying to break down what, what, what annoys people and try and solve that. So if people are annoyed by the fact they don't understand wine labels, help them. For us, for example, I mean, our consumers are the polar opposite of a load of old men in the corner talking about 80s Bordeaux that no one can afford. And for me, that annoys me too. And, and you know, talking about new wines from different places and, um, you know, really appealing for to the problem that you're trying to solve um, has really worked for us. So just two from me. Can I just... Absolutely. Does that come back? Kind of, I do agree with you, Richard, and, and many things. But you are potentially serving a niche, and and where you know your niche and your niche is invested, perfect, absolutely. The what I was addressing is the mass. So you will never address the mass audience with these things. But actually, if you can find a good niche that I'm invested, then then absolutely perfect. But as an industry, I would say that actually you need to think more broadly than that. Sorry, that was the, um, I know I broke the rules. No worries. Just um, we'll jump quickly over to Madeline for some quick last comments. I'm aware we're a few minutes over time, so if we can keep them to. Sure, I'll keep it short. Thank you. Uh, So uh, let's talk uh, very quickly about what Richard Wright said earlier, that um, your core purpose needs if if sustainability is part of your core purpose that's the question you need to ask yourself first before anything else is is sustainability at the core purpose of my business is it there in the core and then and then everything else how do i reflect that in everything else that comes out of that business so it needs if you want to <laughs> if we're going to survive <laughs> We need to have sustainability at the core of our business, right? And so then you're, I really believe, and this is counterintuitive, I really believe that the, the brands that are gonna be sharing more information about their products, whether they're storytelling and it's not on the label and but they managed to do it on their website or through a QR code or whatever, or whether they are putting it on their label, um, I really think that consumers are smarter than you think. I'm always surprised at how much a consumer knows. They might not know exactly why they know what they know, but I'm always surprised by that. And then um, really pay attention to what your consumers care about. So if if sustainability is at your core, you are appealing to a niche audience. Like it's true, like that's not the mass market thing. But then again, look at Dry Farm Wines in the United States. This is a brand that blew up in like three years, like it's a very new brand and it's huge now. And it's because they have this concept of like dry farming. <laughs> this is a natural product. It's 
getting into your hands. It's caring about the environment. And that brand did that with really smart marketing to appeal to this niche audience, right? And so if it's a niche audience, it's it's a breakout niche audience. It's an it's a it's a niche that is growing rapidly. So I, I'm seeing those numbers go up with the interest in these topics. So if you're not putting that into your core and figuring out how to communicate that with information, um, that's that's your goal. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Madeline, Richard Wright, Richard Ellison, and Allison for such a great conversation. And I will hand over to Toby now for some closing remarks. Thanks so much, Hannah. And thanks to all our panelists. Um, it's a tremendously difficult topic to talk about. Companies have been trying to figure this one out for 20 or 30 years or longer. And I think we're, we're certainly getting closer um, in some ways, but it, it will continue to be a tremendous challenge. Uh, to, com to communicate complexity and trade-offs in a simple way is not easy, as we all know. Um, so I'll be brief here. I just really wanted to thank all of you for sticking around uh, and all our speakers, um, the last panel and everybody else. They've been brilliant. The, the conversation from the attendees has been fantastic. We've all learned a lot. I had a really lovely email from Miguel Torres just now saying how much he enjoyed the conference, how he wished he'd been able to stick around for longer. A number of people are sending us emails saying how much they've got out of it. And that's because of all of you, not, not because of us, uh, because you guys have, have helped create the debate. And we look forward to, uh, to continuing the conversations. Um, I urge you to sign up to sustainablewine.co.uk. That's a different website from the conference one. Um, I'm not sure we're allowed to subscribe you under GDPR, so you'll have to sign up yourself. Uh, we will put the, as many videos as we can. I don't guarantee anything um, because it's an awful lot of data, a video we've got to take off Zoom, we've got to edit it, and we've got to try and upload it. Um, and that's going to take a while. So please don't expect all the videos of this conference to be available by Monday morning. That won't be the case. We will do it as quickly as we can. Um, and it just remains for me really to, to thank Hannah and to thank Agatha um, and Richard Bamfield, Sally Evans, Anna Chilton, uh, and many others who've helped us, uh, but also particularly BSI, uh, Chateau Louvre, Conchi Torre UK as, as silver sponsors, and Control Union and Diam. Um, they have... Uh, put some money into this, which we appreciate. We're operating as a non-profit really at the moment, but we are going to invest um, some of that money in the, uh, the website. So the website will be getting a lot better. So please do search for Sustainable Wine on your podcast app and you'll find lots of podcasts, including one with Madeline uh, and some others. And we look forward to staying in touch with you. We're hoping to do three of these events next year, uh, probably all virtual. Uh, an America's conference on a, on a better time zone for you, Madeline and Alison. Uh, we're hoping to do a, a sustainable viticulture uh, conference, sustainability science in the vineyard, we're, we're calling it at the moment. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on that. And then this event will be, will be back next year. And if any of you see opportunities for collaboration, please do let us know. Um, Agatha and Hannah and I all, all have full-time jobs. <laughs> we do, we've done this in our evenings, in our weekends, and in the middle of the night. Um, uh, but we, you know, we do it out of passion um, and out of, uh, I think, a, a deep desire to help the industry move forward. Um, and I think that can be done in one. So really looking forward to staying in touch with you all. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn. We'll, we'll have a LinkedIn group to continue the discussions. We'll send you a link to that. And yeah, if any of you'd like to collaborate, just get in touch and we will be in touch with you. And uh, well, that's it. Thank you all so much. And we'll see you again soon. <laughs>